And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Well, Calgary, um, in a very unique place in the world, in that we get a thing called schnooks, mm. which we might have talked about on the podcast before, but if you don't know, it's basically the word that describes the phenomena of warm air coming from the coast over the mountains to Calgary and causing a 20 degree difference from what we usually have. It makes winter bearable because you go from like it being minus 30 to it being like minus 10. More like plus five. Right. The downside of this is you get pressure headaches and you want to die. <laughs> well, you get pressure headaches. Yes, that's fair. Not yeah. everyone does. Otherwise, mm-hmm. no one would live here. Mm. Um, but yeah, so dealing with that. But otherwise, you know, we're getting warm weather. So yay. How are you? I'm okay. Um, I've been struggling with depression a lot lately. I was really hoping that like the good vibes from Christmas would like last longer. But the turning of the calendar made me reflect on like time and that got me thinking about like how long the pandemic's been a thing and that just like hasn't been good for me and I've had a rough couple days but I'm feeling better right now Uh, I'm doing okay and I'm trying to hold on to that and I'm excited to be doing the show with you yes uh I'm especially excited like I'm always excited but I'm especially excited because you let slip to me earlier today that this is yet another horror film on the Criterion channel. Yes, correct. So why don't you tell us about it? What are we watching? So today, Sarah, we are watching The Haunted Strangler from 1958, directed by Robert Day. And this is the B-movie to Fiend Without a Face from last week. Which was wild. What a movie. (laughs) What a movie. And uh, so like that film, this film was produced by Richard Gordon and John Croydon. So this film began life as a story treatment entitled Stranglehold. Ooh, that, that's a good title. By writer Jan Reed, or maybe Jan Reed, I'm not sure, who would later go on to co-write the screenplay for Jason and the Argonauts, oh. the uh, Harryhausen film. Now, Reed specifically wrote Stranglehold for Boris Karloff. Reed was a friend of Karloff's and wrote this script specifically for him. We last saw Karloff in 1957's Voodoo Island. Was not good. No, not particularly. He was all right. Sure, because he's Karloff. But yeah, not not good. So Karloff had been appearing a lot on like variety television lately um it's been a while since he's had like a reasonably meaty part so when he was presented with the script he absolutely agreed to it and they reached out to richard gordon to produce the film this role gave him something to really grip onto kind of a stranglehold yeah yeah (laughs) so karloff was something of a childhood idol for gordon who had even interviewed him for a uk fan magazine uh 10 years earlier Uh, So, of course, he said yes. Amazing. So Gordon's fellow producer was UK producer John Croydon, 
and the two men made a distribution deal for this film with Eros Films in the UK and MGM in the US. And that distribution deal was contingent on providing a second film to go along with The Haunted Strangler as a double bill. And so for £60,000, Gordon and Croydon produced Fiend Without a Face. And then immediately after shooting on Fiend Without a Face was complete, they began shooting The Haunted Strangler, which was budgeted at £80,000. So again, like all evidence seems to be pointing to The Haunted Strangler being the A picture. But as we kind of discussed in last week's episode, they got swapped because The Fiend Without a Face is fucking wild. Right, exactly. Karloff was paid $2,500 for a month worth of shooting with an option on his contract for a second film with Gordon and Croydon's company, Amalgamated Productions, which would become Corridors of Blood, released later this year, like in 1958. Yeah. The script would be rewritten by John Croydon um, to add inspiration from Jack the Ripper, Uh, to the murders, and also to feature a physical transformation for Karloff's character. And when the production team needed to figure out a way to do that and give Karloff kind of a grotesque appearance with minimal expense, Karloff offered to achieve the desired effect by merely removing his dentures and then sort of contorting his face a bit. (laughs) The film's director was Robert Day, who was born in England in 1922 and had gotten his start in 1941 as a clapper boy, rising his way through the ranks to cinematographer by 1947, before directing his very first feature, The Green Man, in 1956. Day would become quite a prolific director, mostly of low-budget films and on television, retiring in 1991 and passing away in 2017. Wow, retiring in 1991, that's a really long career. Yeah. The film's lead actress is Jean Kent, who was born in London in 1921 as Joan Mildred Summer Field. Her parents were variety show performers, and she began on stage as a dancer at age 10. By the time she was 20, she was signed to Gainsborough Pictures, playing a variety of small roles through the war before getting her big break in the melodrama Fanny by Gaslight in 1944. Is that a... Oh, 1944. Hmm. It has like nothing to do with the movie Gaslight. It's just like Gaslight Lights are a thing that existed in Victorian times, and it's a Victorian movie. Yeah, I just wasn't sure if they were making like a parody movie. I don't mm, know. Not particularly, no. She was typecast as playing sexually aggressive bad girls like music hall performers and the like. (laughs) Um, She signed a new contract in 1946 to reflect her new status as one of Gainsborough's top actresses. However, by the mid-1950s, her career was on the wane, and she was no longer the star she once was. She remained working until 1991, and she passed away at age 92 in 2013. And again, a very long, illustrious career. Yeah, man. I think as long as you show up to work in Britain, you can have a very long career. Yeah. And and people like working with you. Sure. The Haunted Strangler would be the final film of actress Elizabeth Allen, who plays Karloff's wife in the picture. Uh, though she was still 23 years younger than him. Uh, she's 48 and he's 71. Born in 1910, she made her stage debut at age 17, and appeared in her first film at age 21. 
In the 1930s, she acted in the UK before moving to Hollywood in 1933, where she began appearing in films under contract to MGM, such as appearances in the 1935 versions of David Copperfield and A Tale of Two Cities. That same year, she appeared as the female lead in Todd Browning's Mark of the Vampire. Oh. Uh, She was the not Mina in that movie. When MGM replaced her in two major roles that she had been cast in, um, she sued the studio, which led to her returning to the UK in 1938, where she transitioned into character parts before retiring. And as I said, this is her final film. A familiar face for film fans in a supporting role is Scottish actor Anthony Dawson. Born in Edinburgh in 1916, he made his film debut in 1943 after serving in World War II. In addition to film, he also appeared on stage, notably in the play Dial M for Murder. Who did he play in Dial M for Murder? He is the um, person who, in the movie Grace Kelly Murders, he reprised the role in the 1954 film. Oh, oh, sweet, cool. Uh, The Hitchcock adaptation. Um, So that's one of the main movies that he's remembered for by film fans the other would probably be his role as professor dent in dr no the first james bond movie in 1962 he was also the physical actor of the unseen blofeld in from russia with love and thunderball though the voice was provided by eric pullman another familiar face in this movie is vera day who we remember as the blonde bombshell in quittermass 2 and woman eater Guy Ritchie fans will also know her as Tanya in Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels years later in 1998. And she is currently 86 years old. She retired from acting in 2007. Ultimately, uh, despite having the higher budget and the big name star, MGM decided that Fiend Without a Face would be the bigger draw and released The Haunted Strangler as the lower half of the double bill on June 3rd, 1958. That double bill would make $650,000 worldwide, a reasonable hit. The Haunted Strangler was released in the UK in October of 1958 as Grip of the Strangler. Maybe a little bit of a better name than The Haunted Strangler. Are either of them better or worse than Stranglehold? Stranglehold is top tier. Gotcha. Well, that's not what they went with, unfortunately. God damn it, MGM. As uh, you already mentioned, this film is part of the Criterion Collection, spine number 397, I believe. And so it is available to stream on the Criterion channel or uh, on like Blu-ray and DVD uh, through that illustrious company. (laughs) So I'm sure that after we watch this movie, we can like, you know, trade theories as to why this was punted down to, to be the second half. My theory, without having seen it, is that because it has Boris Karloff and because it deals with, say, Jack the Ripper, they feel like a little more old-fashioned than what we saw in Fiend Without a Face. So maybe that's why. They also, as we talked about in last week's episode, did a lot of really interesting marketing and promotional Mm -hmm. activities related to Fiend Without a Face And maybe they saw those opportunities more aligned with the A picture rather than this one. Yeah, I I would say my theories sort of align with yours. I think from what I understand of this movie, it's a little bit old fashioned. It has kind of more of like a, you know, the body snatcher sort Mm -hmm. of feel. And it doesn't have ambulatory stop motion animated killer brains. 
it does have Boris Karloff without his dentures. Yes. Which really served Frankenstein well. Right. So we'll see how well it serves the Haunted Strangler nearly three decades later. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Haunted Strangler from 1958, directed by Robert Day. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Haunted Strangler from 1958, directed by Robert Day. Ben, what did you think of this? Well, I'm sorry to say this, Sarah, but this movie sucked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not um it's not that bad. It was a movie, so you know, it has that level of competence. Um I I did enjoy what was happening on the screen for the most part. Um, but especially when you're following up Fiend Without a Face. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of good ideas here, mm-hmm. um, but they're basically all given in the wrong order. And the structure of the story is very messed up. It is. Um, it almost feels like it was edited poorly. Like... It- or put out of order or something. I, I blame something. the screenplay. The screenplay yeah. is not good. It did its job bad. But um, why don't you tell us about how the story goes and we can discuss how the screenplay did its job bad. <laughs> I think proper grammar has done it poorly. True, true. We open in 1860 in London, um, specifically at Newgate Prison. Um, and we see that there is a one-armed man who is being hanged. This man's name is Edward Stiles, and he has been charged as being the Haymarket Strangler. Once he has died, he's confirmed dead by um, a Dr. Tennant, and uh, he's put into a coffin, lie is put on, on top of him, and then they bury him. Um, before the coffin is closed, however, we see a knife is thrown in at the last minute and is buried with him. At the burial, uh, Dr. Tennant is shown fainting. Then we get the credits, and over the course of the credits, um, it's clear 20 years have passed, and a novelist named James Rankin is researching Stiles' case for a new book. The ultimate goal of which is to clear Styles' name and to be like, if he had had like a proper lawyer defending him, he, he would never have been hanged. All of the evidence was circumstantial at best. Yeah, it's like a social commentary work about how like the poor can't afford justice. Now through Rankin, we meet his wife, Barbara, who is like, oh, Rankin, can you can you please stop working on this? Like, it seems to be taking a lot out of you. Please stop working on this particular novel. We meet his daughter, Lily, who happens to be dating on the sly, Rankin's assistant, Kenneth. And we also meet Scotland Yard Superintendent Burke. Now, through the course of his investigations, Rankin is trying to find Dr. Tennant. He's come to this conclusion because he's looked through the case files and Dr. Tennant seems to 
I have more to say about the autopsies of all of the girls that were murdered um, than what would nor- be, be like normal for a coroner. Also, Dr. Tennant, like, we saw that he fainted and he disappeared after that. Looking into that disappearance leads Rankin to an asylum where Tennant was taken because he was having fits of, like, a different personality coming on and um, periods of paralysis on his left side. And the trail goes cold again because it turns out Tennant escaped with the nurse. Um, just, just Harley Quinned up in here. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. But looking through Tennant's things, uh, they notice that his, like, surgeon kit and stuff is missing the scalpel. Now that the lead about Dr. Tennant has gone cold, they decide, they and Rankin and his assistant Kenneth, decide to check out the place where the last girl was murdered. Uh, this victim, her name was Martha Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> this music hall is called... The Judas Hole. Which is a weird name for a music hall. Yes. So they go in and they meet Cora, who is on the older side now. She's the person who identified Edward Stiles leaving the murder of uh, Martha Stewart um, and identified him because his back was turned, but he only had one arm. Mm -hmm. So clearly it was the only other one-armed man that she knew, you know. Yeah. It was it was the one-armed man. <laughs> During the scene, we also meet Pearl, who is Cora's protege. Pearl is played by Vera Day, and um, I mention that because, uh, as is pretty frequent in all of Vera Day's appearances on this podcast, her breasts are very prominent, and the camera makes sure to zoom in on them. Especially in this case, when someone spills a bottle of champagne on them. Yeah, it's like a real close-up. Yeah, it's just like a close-up of champagne running down her tits, like in a movie. <laughs> it's like it's nineteen fifty-eight. Like, why? Why is this here? Welcome. I mean, I know why it's <laughs> yeah. here. Welcome to. Um... To gratuitous sex and violence, Sarah. It's just going to ramp up from here. Um, I just feel really bad for Vera Day. Mm. I feel like she's getting pigeonholed into this stuff. She performs like she's enjoying this type of role, but she's also an actress, so she's performing. Sure. Yeah, she's playing like a music hall performer. So they've got her in like the really like ridiculous over the top kind of like Victorian lingerie corset where like... Her boobs are like a shelf near her chin. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Cora tells Rankin and Kenneth that um, Tennant was also a frequenter of <laughs> the Judas Hole. Jesus. And well, uh, yeah, Jesus, Judas. Um, and that like he had a thing for Martha Stewart, but no one really liked him because he just had like a vibe about him. Yeah, he just had like a creeper vibe, yeah. basically. Yeah, like all of the like evidence that they're finding about Tennant is very like, he uh, was a surgeon and he had fits of paralysis and he hung around with all the women who got killed and he did all their uh, death certificates and he did the autopsy of styles and like, he was just like a weird creep with like an abusive mom and dad. And like, you know, he was a great, brilliant mind, but kind of like a little bit on the flaky side. Like, so they're just sort of collecting a lot of like 
tenant was probably the murderer, not Styles' evidence. Yeah. yeah. Now it should be noted that Kenneth, while he is Rankin's assistant and also the boyfriend of Lily, his schooling is in what will become basically criminal psychology. Yeah. Yeah. He's um. I think they do actually call him Dr. McCall. Yes. Like he has his degree. Yes. With all of this evidence about Tennant, as well as noticing in Tennant's surgeon case that was left at the asylum that uh, the scalpel is missing, Rankin deduces that the scalpel must be in Stiles's coffin. So he goes to the warden of Newgate Prison to ask to exhume the body. And the warden is like, no. Now it's important to note that this scene is happening during torture. Uh, yeah, like someone's being flogged. Um, several people are being flogged. Uh, I would consider that torture, but maybe at this point in time for like, this is said in like 1880, it would be considered punishment. Yeah. Corporal punishment. Um, torture generally is with the implication that you're trying to get something out of it. Like as part of interrogation. Yeah. They're trying to get blood (laughs) out of the person. (laughs) Anyway. So the warden is overseeing this and it's a, a little on the comical side because, you know, you see that people are being flogged. And then the camera pans and then we see the warden and Rankin talking. And as we're focused on them talking, we're still hearing the cries of the people. But it's just the the fact that it goes on for so long becomes a little comical. Yeah, Victorian prisons are awful is the point of the scene. <laughs> but again, the warden's like, no, I'm not doing this. And Rankin actually ends up fainting because of seeing the flogging. When he comes to, um, the guard that's with him is like, you know, I have a key to the graveyard and I happen to know that no one goes looking between these particular hours in the morning. And, uh, I can tell you where that grave is. Um, and you know, for a certain price, I might be able to like turn a blind eye as I open the door and like turn my back as someone walks through. So basically Rankin's able to get into the graveyard and he digs up Stiles' body and he finds the knife. Once Rankin finds the knife, he transforms. He becomes possessed. Yeah, he one of his arms kind of shrivels up as if he has like palsy. Mm-hmm. And then the opposite side of his face um, gets all kind of like screwed up like he's had like, like it looks like he's a stroke victim, basically. Yeah, um, and he basically one eye is kind of winky close and uh the way he has his like mouth is like he's like sucking in the bottom lip yeah in like a strange way yeah and and his you know we can tell that his um bottom dentures are out basically as this paralyzed deformed man rankin heads to the judas hole music hall um and murders pearl however he's seen (laughs) by like everyone Cora sees him too, and she immediately identifies him, not as Dr. Rankin, but as the Haymarket Strangler. And that's how everyone sees him. They don't recognize him as Dr. Rankin. The next day, Rankin, Burke, and Kenneth head over to the music hall, and they are all pretty sure that Rankin's investigation has, like, sparked or reignited the killings in some way. At least, in, you know, it does prove Rankin's theory that Styles is innocent, um yeah burke doesn't seem to consider that it might be like a copycat killer 20 years later it's like oh someone's doing haymarket strangler stuff okay cool styles was wrongfully hanged and you know rankin's probably 
write about Tenet. Yeah. Speaking of Franken, he is very unwell. Um, he doesn't seem to be sleeping much, and when he does, it's mainly nightmares. And Barbara comes to him again and again, implores him to stop this investigation. She says, I haven't seen you like this since... Dot, dot, dot. Turns out, Barbara is the nurse from the asylum. And, Barbara's Harley Quinn. And Franken is Tennant. You know, the Joker. <laughs> And we get a little bit of backstory that, like, you know, I fell in love with you. You were so kind. Um, I couldn't believe everyone when they said you were insane. And so um, I was already expecting a child. So we escaped the asylum or I broke you out or whatever. And now we're here. And you, you know, Lily loves you like you're her own father. So really underlining, like, Lily isn't related by blood. Right. She gordoned him. Is what she did, like Fester from the first Adams Family movie, okay. where she discovered him and then told him he had amnesia and like made up a new backstory for him that he has since accepted. And then taken that away and said, actually, you are of the Adams Family. <laughs> and Rankin's like, I think I've always known. Yes. But clearly, like, he is overwrought and a fit overcomes Rankin. He becomes who I will describe as tenant mm. now going forward, uh, the paralyzed, deformed man. And um, he murders Barbara and runs out. Now, their maid, Helen, does see him run out, but later she doesn't recognize him as Dr. Rankin. When he does return in the morning, Burke, Kenneth, and um, a new doctor, Dr. Johnson, are at the house. Dr. Johnson is here at the request of Lily and Kenneth because they're really worried about Dr. Rankin, um, especially now that Barbara has been murdered, um, they're really concerned about his mental health and well-being. And Burke is here to be like, I think you are being targeted by this killer. Something's terribly going wrong. But Rankin takes Burke aside and says, no, I, I killed Barbara. Like I am Heathcliff. <laughs> um, I am Tennant. Uh, she told me and I had a fit and I murdered her. And... Um, Burke isn't really convinced because there's, like, no murder weapon on him. Uh, he doesn't seem to recall where the knife has been put. We saw that Rankin Tennant uh, hid the knife in the bookshelf, but they don't know where it is now. Lily and Kenneth get the Dr. Johnston to uh, see Rankin and just to kind of evaluate him. And... Basically, Lily and Kenneth want to put Rankin into like a private home where he can kind of like rest and relax after all of this. And when Rankin learns about this, he attacks Dr. Johnson to be like, no, you're not putting me away. And that attack leads Dr. Johnson to be like, no, OK, he's going straight into an asylum. Fuck this guy. Yeah, it's so it's a little I don't know if this is irony or what, because like. So Rankin's point of view is, I'm actually tenant. No, you have to believe me. I'm going to kill again, probably. Like, put me in, in jail. Like, I'm the murderer. And everyone else is like, oh, he's gone through a horrible, like, mental break because his wife's been murdered. You know, he needs to get treatment uh, in, like, a private home. And then when he hears that, he's like, no, I need to prove that I'm tenant so that you'll lock me up. And they're like, oh, well, I guess we'll lock you up now that you've attacked Johnson. And he's like, no, you can't lock me up. I need to prove that I'm tenant so you can lock me up. And it's a little 
little, I don't know, question marks start appearing above my head. Absolutely. So Rankin's put into an asylum. Lily and Kenneth are trying to get in there and get Rankin out because they know it's Victorian times asylums. Uh, you don't want to be in there. Um, and we do see Rankin being mistreated a bit, forcibly fed, um, that sort of thing. That night, Rankin, so he's only able to transform into Tenant if he sees the knife. So he imagines seeing the knife and then he turns into Tenant and he escapes by starting a fire in his cell. Um, he murders a maid on the way out. Now he's on the run. He Chelsea grins a guy. He does. Yeah. He does uh, with glass mm -hmm. and then shoves that dude into the fire. Mm -hmm. um, at least it cauterizes the wounds. I, uh, presumably. We yeah. never see that guy again. Since he's on the run, Burke comes to um, Kenneth and Lily at the home and it's like, I, I'm pretty sure he's going to come back here. So let's set up some guards here. Um, those guards are easily fooled and gotten out of the house, including Burke is out of the house, while Rankin, as tenant, manages to get inside he goes into the library gets the knife ends up killing kenneth before chasing after lily did he he didn't kill kenneth he did killed he? kenneth we see him get stabbed in the side and then we never see him again i thought we saw him and lilith together again at the end of the movie didn't we i didn't oh huh okay and just as he's about to kill lily he sees the faces of his previous victims flash before his eyes and that kind of brings him back to rankin and he goes like, oh, no, this is wrong. I, I don't mean to hurt you, Lily. I'm sorry. And that's just as Burke comes in and Burke's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to arrest you now. And Rankin's like, good. Yes, that's right. But this knife needs to be buried back with Styles's body. And then he jumps out a window. Like he goes from speaking calmly to <laughs> jumping out a window. He's on the run again and he makes it to the graveyard. And he's trying to like dig into Styles's grave to put the knife back um and in the midst of that uh he is shot and killed over the grave and uh the ending line is you know burke being like don't worry rankin i'll have the knife destroyed the end <sighs> the thing i will note about the graveyard because this is something i didn't quite get into when rankin is trying to convince people that he is tenant he tries to be like no like i got the knife from styles's grave but he goes to where he thought the grave was, and it's not Styles's grave. The guard who let him into the graveyard is like, no, I didn't let him in. What are you talking about? Um, and we'll stick to that story. And yeah, the grave where Styles's body would be, they can't find it again. Um, so it's like, whose grave did he die over? Well, so when he goes to get the knife, he finds that first grave mm -hmm. and then he goes over and finds Styles's. and the second time they just find that first grave james moxon's grave and so i think that's just the turnkey didn't lead them over to styles grave because he knew then that like he would be caught because the turnkey denies that he helped rankin in when rankin's trying to prove that he got the knife from the grave because he'll get like fired right and then when they go into the cemetery to look he leads them to the wrong grave and then at the end of the movie he's the one who orders for someone to shoot Mm. Rankin before he can get to Styles's grave to put the knife back in. So I think that guy's just covering his ass the whole way. So as you can kind of tell from this plot summary, there's a lot of like details and ins and outs in this movie um, because it's sort of structured like a mystery. So there's like a lot of 
you know, various pieces to the puzzle for everyone to like be putting together throughout the movie, which kind of makes it like a little messy to to summarize. But this movie itself is structured very strangely. Yeah. So what we have here is basically a Jekyll and Hyde story. Yeah. That could have done what the novel Jekyll and Hyde does, which is preserve the twist so that the twist ending is you find out Jekyll was Hyde the whole time, which no movie of Jekyll and Hyde can do because the premise is too familiar. But instead, the movie totally squanders its most interesting twist because we see Karloff transform and then kill people before we learn that he's actually Tenet. And we learn that he's actually Tenet before anyone brings up the suggestion that the knife is possessing him, which then ends up becoming like this key thing at the end of the movie where we have to destroy the knife. And the knife possessing him is brought up as an idea by Kenneth, Dr. McCall, who suggests that like, it's not literally possessing him, but that like, it's, you know, a fixation for the Mm -hmm. tenant side of his personality, Um, which suggests that like, maybe if you destroyed the knife, he could be like innocent Rankin again, maybe, but like that doesn't get developed far enough because he gets shot because, well, Rankin just wants to be arrested, but I guess in a very specific way, because every time they go to arrest him, he's like, no, I, I not like this. Yeah. The other reason why this movie is structured kind of strangely is the pacing's a little strange. The point where we find the knife and Rankin gets possessed. Mm-hmm. I remember being like, oh, well, I like that he's getting possessed like immediately. But then he goes to the music hall and we see the entire stage performance again it's a different performance but it's still like seeing like oh yay girls flicking their legs at the camera yeah we see two full can can performances and we basically get cora's entire performance and the movie's trying to play it like they're doing like a point counterpoint suspense thing where like she's singing and he's sneaking up on pearl but it goes on for too long and then when he's on the run in the asylum and there's the like cleaning lady that he kills we get like a whole song from her before he kills her so it's hard not to feel like that's just blatant padding yeah the the dramatic like pivot point where he learns that he's tenant which i called like a scene early uh literally the previous scene and i was like oh well we'll put a pin in that and the next scene barbara's like you are tenant. And he's like, I knew it all along. And I was like, where did this come from? Yeah. Like I figured it out because Barbara's whole, like, you need to stop doing this, honey scenes were like way more emphatic than those scenes normally are when it's like the wife telling the scientist he needs to calm down, especially because all he's fucking doing is like researching a true crime novel. Like, it's like, why are you so overly concerned about this? And then, you know, and she's trying to make sure he's okay. And like, it's not just that she doesn't want him to be working too hard. It's like, don't look into this particular thing. And I need you to be okay. And I need to like, make sure you're sleeping well. And then, yeah, it was some scene where Rankin's talking to Burke about how we need to find the nurse because we need to find Tenet now that he's been killing people again. And our only lead is that he escaped with this nurse. So we need to track down that nurse. And I was like, his wife's the nurse. Mm -hmm. And that's what we found out in the next scene. But like... The problem is 
that happens halfway through the movie, that moment of like, oh, the man he was trying to find was him all along, which <laughs> is like, that's the interesting dramatic twist, right? So because that's halfway through, honestly, I found that the second half of the movie was really dramatically inert because mm-hmm. it was basically just about how Rankin wants you to arrest him because he's tenant, not because he's crazy. Right. Because he's not crazy because tenant's he's crazy. Tenant's crazy and he's tenant, but he's not crazy. <laughs> and like the movie just kind of runs around in circles for a little bit because it's like, what does Rankin want? Well, Rankin wants tenant to be stopped and he's tenant. So he wants to be arrested. So they do that. But that, but we didn't do it the right way. So we have to get him out so that we can do it again. And like he escapes so that he can prove his guilt so they can put him back in there. And like even at the end where we're at this climax with Lily, the psychology of like why he doesn't kill her just because he suddenly remembered that like he had other victims doesn't really make sense to me. Um, Like why he suddenly feels remorse now, but whatever he you know he comes out of the fit really mm-hmm. is out how it should be regarded but then it's like oh yes of course burke i need to be arrested we also need to destroy this knife and it's like out the window right it's like so just let him arrest you and then he'll go dispose destroy of the, the knife, knife. It's, like, fine. it's fine yeah and so and then suddenly they're chasing him again and it's time to shoot him like it's the last half of the movie is just kind of a mess because it's just running around in circles and and very confusing yeah the movie kind of loses track of why we're doing things yeah um and and who we should be like rooting for like what's the outcome that we want to happen yeah and it was also strange because kenneth is just kind of like vestigial hanging around until the second half when he steps in to be like trying to get Rankin mm-hmm. into the private home or whatever because Lily can't do anything because she's a woman in Victorian times. But there's also like some really weirdly underdeveloped stuff there where like Rankin is angry that he's been thrown into the asylum and he blames Kenneth and Lily because he thinks that Kenneth's trying to get him out of the way so that he can marry Lily because there was some conflict earlier in the movie about how they were dating and he didn't know and that's bad because Victorian times. Except that like... Again, Rankin wants to be locked up in an asylum for the criminally insane because he's tenant. It's just he doesn't want to be locked up for this reason. Like, it's yeah. it's very hair-splitty. The structure of the movie should be that we have Rankin tracking down tenant and finding the clues that, like, it was tenant, not Styles, And then, like, the murders start again. Like, Pearl gets murdered. And it's like, oh... Who's doing the murders now? Is it a copycat or has like your investigation brought tenant back out somehow, which is like a possibility that's raised, but we already know by that point that it's Rankin doing it. So it's Mm -hmm. like a total nothing, right? That should be a major dramatic question is like, is your investigation responsible for the murders returning? And then there's a dramatic irony there because like, yes, but in a more literal way. And then it should have been like, okay, well, I took the knife out of Styles's coffin to prove that it was there, but clearly the knife was used to do the murders, so he must have stolen the knife from me. And then you go and check, and oh no, I still have the knife. So how could Tenant be using it if I have it? And then, oh, well, what if it's me doing it and Tenant is possessing me through the knife? Because this idea that the knife is possessing him is clearly important, but they introduce it at the end of the movie after we already know all the secrets mm-hmm. and it's not important. So it's like, and it's already an idea in people's heads because of the title. Right. So it's like, okay, you should have had 
the structure be, we think it's Tenet doing it, and then we think maybe it's Rankin, and then Rankin thinks maybe he's possessed by the knife, or maybe it's his obsessions that have driven him off the deep end, and then we should find out, no, he is Tenet, and the first time we ever see him transform should be when he transforms to kill Barbara. Yeah. That should be near the climax of the movie, and then after he kills Barbara, it should be, you know, go on a rampage, the cops chase you down, you they shoot him by the grave, Jekyll and Hyde ending. Like, that's how the story should mm-hmm. be told, and instead, they, they fuck that all up somehow. <laughs> No, we can see how they fuck it up. It, it's not a question of somehow. That absolutely sounds like a more exciting movie. I think that, you know, there's something to be said about that kind of structure possibly being more into thriller than horror. But I mm. think like properly executed and emphasizing the horror of like what is going on in your mind. Yeah, it should be like an Orlax hands thing. Yeah. So it, it would still lean into horror. Absolutely. The problem here is that they show you him transforming when he finds the knife and then show you that it's clearly him doing the murders before the mystery question of who is doing the murders is even raised. Yeah. And so it just makes the whole movie dramatically inert. The transformation scene, that first one, is well done considering they're trying to do it as cheap as possible. They do some cinematic techniques like close up on the knife and, you know, Karloff's hand kind of going a little strange, like against his will. Um, So they do cinematically tell that story well, which I think is kind of putting a point towards like the crew and like the makers of the film and against the screenplay. Yeah, it's a well-made movie. It's just not doing a good job with the ideas that it has. Mm -hmm. Um, also like, frankly, Karloff's like transformed monster look is kind of sad. Like, even if we sidestep the fact that it's kind of like this stereotyped, the way his hand is and his face, it's kind of like the kind of gesture face that you'd create to kind of mock a mentally ill person. Even if we sidestep that for a moment, Mm -hmm. it's kind of lame like it's just you know holding his hand up like he has palsy and kind of taking his dentures out and kind of making a face and scrunching his face up and walking around the other thing about this movie is i can definitely see why it was seen as old-fashioned it definitely feels old-fashioned in the setup and the plot Mm -hmm. i will say that the last third from the asylum onwards kind of shook up that like old fashionedness because, you know, we're seeing the flogging and hearing the screams. Um, the stuff in the asylum is chilling because like they're letting you hear the screams that you get to see a patient. Yeah. The thing that's modern about the movie is the boobs and the blood basically. <laughs> right. And like, there's, you know, certain things like, like, um, Cora calls Pearl a bitch at one point and it was like, Oh my, <laughs> Oh dear. I thought I just misheard that. No, no, okay. she did. Yeah, awesome. yeah, no. Um, so there's like these modernized elements in terms of like less censorship, I guess you could call it. Yeah. But yeah, the structure of the story and and how it's told, you know, has a very like this could have been done in 1943 kind of vibe to it. Yeah. The superfluous stuff at the dance hall, like we've already talked about the can-can scenes and seeing all of Cora's performance, but specifically Vera Day's sexualization Mm -hmm. is just like, it feels tacked on because we're padding for time. Like it feels like a padding for time. 
the weird thing about it is Vera Day's sexualization makes sense if, you know, we're talking about some Jack the Ripper style murders of prostitutes and there's like this implied sexual element, like the idea is that like Tennant hung around the music hall and was gropey with the babes and they didn't like that. And so he killed them. Mm-hmm. Right. And when Rankin transforms before killing Pearl, like he kind of like is in the shadows watching her change, like, <sighs> you know, kind of for a while. So there's this sexual element there that like, it's is really like addressed. The, yes, that's the problem. Pearl gets murdered and then that's never important ever again. The the whole Jack the Ripper sexualized element of the murders. Tenants like psychology about why he was a murderer to begin with, like stops being important once we know it's Rankin. And and all of that goes out the window. The can-can scenes themselves, it's the most brightly lit music hall I've ever seen. Spotless. Like the, the scenes would maybe be entertaining and interesting if they were like theatrically lit, but they're not. They do try to do some good shadow stuff in the, what I'll call the tenant sections of the movie. Those scenes are nice and shadowy and dark and stuff. Yeah. They, they just don't, there are parts, that's the thing. There are just ideas in this movie that get raised and don't get dealt with. Mm-hmm. And with the murder of Pearl, like the blood and violence in the second half of the movie really sort of surprised me particularly because Pearl's murder is handled like it's a movie from the 40s. Yeah, you see like her hand kind of struggling and stuff. So, okay, so the method of murder is uh, they call it being half strangled. And um, so basically like until they're unconscious and then they are stabbed. Yeah. The whole reason why they arrested Styles was because he had one arm and they knew that the women were strangled by someone with one with only one hand at a time. And of course, we find out that like Tennant had these paralysis fits in the one arm. Right. Yeah. So there's like no blood with Vera Day's murder with Pearl. We do get to see her dead face mm-hmm. in a close-up but it's all very bloodless yes. and we don't really see her die it's more of the old-fashioned like he comes in and grabs her and we fade to black while she screams kind of thing the weird thing about that is they hype up the stranglers murders before then they, they talk about how like extremely gruesome they were and how women's throats were slashed so deep they were almost beheaded and things they're really trying to go for a jack, jack the, the ripper, ripper thing and so when it comes time to her murder and we saw nothing, I was like, yeah, this is really weak. This is kind of old fashioned. This is kind of bloodless. But then we got like all the blood and guts later. So I, I, I just wonder if it's like because she was a woman or something. But like the scene where he kills his wife is way more brutal. Still no blood, though. But we like hear him like carving through her with yeah, the knife and stuff and while we her watch her hand, hand is jerking around so yeah. it is effective but yeah the only time we see blood is uh when it's drooling out of karloff's mouth after he's been shot and the guy he he slashes across the face to be fair it's not like blood splurting it's no. like a line on his yeah. face whereas like karloff gets like a bullet through the chest that like he has like a squib and stuff like you can you can see why karloff wanted to make this movie mm-hmm. because you know, all the personality changes and stuff give him a lot to play with. And the script plays to his traditional two personas of like kindly old man and gruesome killer. Yeah, exactly. Ruthless murderer. And I think Karloff does a pretty good job. He doesn't seem rusty in any sort of way. He also doesn't feel like old hat. Like mm-hmm. he's clearly like 
putting effort into what he's doing. Yeah, he's pretty damn energetic considering his age. Like he's bounding around in jumping true... through windows. Yeah, he's doing like the true Mr. Hyde thing, jumping off of balconies and things like he's Frederick March from nearly 30 years earlier, right? Like, yeah, it's it's very Karloff does Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Other people in the cast who I thought did well were Gene Kent, who plays Cora, and Anthony Dawson, who plays Burke. Yeah. I thought they did a pretty good job. Um, but Diane Aubrey and Tim Turner, who play the breeding pair, are kind of just a snooze. I did like Lily's like look of horror as her dad is like going to strangle her. Mm-hmm. But that's like the only time that I really felt she was bringing something to the role. Yeah, she's like weirdly passive the rest of the time, especially like the day where her mom has been murdered and her dad goes crazy. Yeah. She's just like very calm about the whole thing in a weird way. Yeah. And yeah. And Tim Turner as um, Kenneth is just kind of like, hi, I'm handsome. Uh, His character is from Canada. Yes. Kenneth, Kenneth McCall from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, don't worry, Lily, I'll take you away from here to Canada. (laughs) And there's just something about that that is like very funny. Inherently funny. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, where would you like to rank this then? So I had a really hard time with ranking this because it's like well-made, but not good. I will say I did not have a hard time. I have a spot. Well, that's great. Well, let's do my range first then, and we'll see if your spot is lucky enough to be inside the range, and then we can just call it. Um, I was looking for the section of the list that was like, you made a good movie, but you didn't maybe like express your ideas as well as you could have you've lost potential um so my floor is number 160 uh which is below the unknown by todd browning and above the aztec mummy and then looking up from there i ended up with a very wide range because my ceiling is number 128 above the 1956 version of yatsia kaiden that's just kind of like serviceable and below curse of the cat people which is interesting and doing neat things so 128 to 160 is my range okay so we might have a problem then because my spot is above your range oh no (laughs) um so let me before i say where i was thinking yeah walk me through it um i think that this movie is doing some like horrific things um Mm -hmm. And showing, you know, the flogging, the asylum stuff. You see a man hanged at the beginning and people cheering about it. And like they're trying to make a point of it's weird and gross that people are cheering. Yeah, they're they're making the movie is making a point about Victorian England being awful. Yeah. Um, And they're also showing the horrific spot that Rankin is in when he is like, no, you need to believe me that I'm tenant. Um and that I did kill my wife. Hmm. Like, and no one's really believing you. I did kill my wife. I don't care. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so, okay. So keeping that in mind, you know, that stuff was effective for me. He literally starts a fire and he is in Karloff himself. It, there's no stunt double. He starts a fire yeah. in his own room. Like, There's yeah. cool stuff in this movie. It just needed a better script. Absolutely. So I immediately thought of another Kurloff movie that we consistently praise the black room yes at 72 which is also kind of a dual personality thing for him exactly um and the black room is better Mm -hmm. 
below that is not of this earth, which, you know, has consistent ideas. That's the one with the dude with the x-ray eyes and like mm-hmm. the men in black situation. Right. And conspiracy. Yes. Um, but it is at least consistent in its ideas. Right. Mm-hmm. Looking down, I stopped at number 78, the thing that couldn't die. Because that's, if you remember, uh, out on the farm and um, they dig up that cursed chest. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not the best movie. Mm. And I felt that, okay, Haunted Strangler is better than that movie. So my spot is to come in at the new 78, above the thing that couldn't die, and below Quatermass 2, which is the one with the blob. So I think we're going to have to move down from here and find a compromise spot. For sure. I think for me, the problem is that like watching these other movies, I never thought to myself while I was watching the movie, man, this kind of sucks, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, And I think maybe it's because like as a writer myself, Mm. I was just like very sensitive to the fact that the writer of this movie had like fucked up telling his story entirely. Like it's like as if you ask someone to tell you about the three little pigs and the person was like, so there was this big bad wolf who died. The pigs each had a house and one was of brick and the others blew down. But not the brick house. And then it turns out that the wolf was the pig. Yeah, and you're like, none Wait. of this mattered. <laughs> um, so I was really sensitive to the fact that like it was so easy for me to rewrite it, to rewrite this to a form that would have been a good movie. So, so what was your ceiling again? 128. So that makes the difference between them basically 50 films, 51 films between our spots. Okay. That puts us at The Beast with Five Fingers, which is also not good because it squanders... But has good moments. Yes, but it squanders all of its hard-earned good feeling with a ending that says, hey, this was some goofy bullshit. But it squanders it at the ending. Mm-hmm, not the midway point. So... So let's look below that then. Below that we have The Ghoul, which is another Karloff UK horror picture. Below that we have like The Raven, which is also a movie where Karloff has a weird face and kills people. Mm-hmm. Um, another Karloff movie here is The Man with Nine Lives, where I think that's the one where he was cryogenically frozen in his yeah. basement. And then he freezes everyone like he draws them in. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, all right, let me let me fast forward here. The Man from Planet X. Mm-hmm. Oh, but below that is Phantom of the Rue Morgue, which has a lot more blood. And Murders in the Rue Morgue, which is always a problem. What do we think of this versus Murders in the Rue Morgue? I know that's always a difficult question. I feel like Murders has to go above. Because I'm willing to put this above Zombies of Moratau. Which just had like weird, frustrating zombie ghost logic that didn't quite add up. But it was consistent, Ben, is the problem. Um, I'm also good with putting this like above Invaders from Mars and The Mummy's Tomb and things like that. Um, Dracula's Daughter's kind of a mess. Yeah, I will say Dracula's Daughter ends up being a bit of a rehash of Dracula Um, And I feel like The Haunted Strangler, a lot of its problems come from it not wanting to be a rehash of Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, that's totally true. Like the reason why they don't give you the correct story structure, I think, is because 
they were like, eh, everyone's going to be able to guess it's Karloff who's the monster, so let's just reveal it up front. And that broke the whole story. Um, the Mummy's Tomb, what I'll say about it is that it's probably the best iteration of the Mummy movies, which all had the exact same plot. Which one is Tomb again? The one where he goes to suburban America and oh, like yeah, Michael Myers peoples. Uh, okay, let's put it above Invaders from Mars then. Um, because that that's the one with the kid, that's right? That's the kid one where it was all a dream at the end. And we have to watch like the same five Martians run down the hallway 18 million times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Haunted Strangler is much better than that, both in terms of horror and um, in terms of being made. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So that means that this is entering the list at the new number 117 below the mummy's tomb and above invaders from Mars. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and help the show out by leaving a rating or a review if you are listening on a service that allows you to do those things. You can also just tell a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. And if you are financially able to do so, you can check out patreon.com slash scream scene podcast where you can help support the show for as little as a dollar a month. The money on Patreon goes towards paying our hosting fees and sort of providing for like the time that it takes for us to research and record these episodes. And if you are a patron at higher levels, you get access to regular bonus content. Additionally, each and every month on Patreon, we have our horror adjacent bonus episode vote. Um, and it looks like it's going to be the mask of Fu Manchu. So get Great. ready, get ready for some work, Sarah, to contextualize that. that. Uh, but thank you all for voting. And if you want to vote for next month's movie, you can do so at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are heading back to America and the familiar stomping grounds of American international pictures with the movie How to Make a Monster, which is a horror movie set on the set of Teenage Werewolf versus Teenage Frankenstein an AIP movie that doesn't actually exist. <laughs> okay, we will need to give some context to this because I am already lost. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.